everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Tessa, and today on our panel, we have Ari Clark. Hello. Very special guest panelist, Alex Brevere. Hello. And our special guest for this episode is Matt Del Signore. Matt, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes. So I am a front-end engineer at Google. I do mainly Angular right now, but I'm also one of the organizers of the Vue NYC meetup. Uh, and do view for most of my side projects. Nice. So Matt, you're here to talk to us today about computer science education. So I'd like to start off by asking everybody, like, what does your educational background look like? Or how did you get into tech? Ari, would you like to start? Sure, I can start. So my educational background, I'm a mechanical engineering dropout. And then many years after dropping out, about a decade, I then went to a 20-week boot camp. And that is how I got into the tech space. So no CS officially. I guess I'll go next. So my background is I have a high school diploma. I did theater for 15 years. And then I got into computers and stuff. So that is my story. So I was lucky enough to go to a high school that had computer science classes. And I started off by learning the 1984 version of GW Basic. And <laughs> from there, I finished up high school and did AP Computer Science and then went to Stony Brook for a bachelor's in computer science. Nice. Yeah, I think my high school did have a computer science program, but uh, a lot of my friends were in it and they were like, you should visit. And I went to visit and they just watched the old Tron movie. <laughs> So I didn't end up taking the class. Beyond that, I feel like my story is pretty similar to Ari's and we have an episode on it already, but I studied art. I worked a bunch of odd jobs. And then the main difference, I guess, beyond that I didn't study engineering in school, save a couple of classes was my program was 17 weeks instead of 20. So I have no idea what a computer science degree would entail or what skills it would equip someone with to go into a web development role. Matt, could you talk more about that? Yes, yeah, so I think it depends a lot on the program. And this is where I think accreditation comes into play. So there's an organization called ABET that actually accredits programs. I know that they do computer science programs. I don't know what else they do. But for example, my program, they didn't really have a specialization in web development. It was more that you took a databases class and then you took a Java class that ended up using Spring for backend development. Honestly, there was sort of a, a lack of front-end development instruction. Like I, I learned a lot of this stuff I learned on my own, went to a lot of hackathons and I would talk to people there and then they would teach me stuff. Like they would say, oh, check out Express and use Node for your server and then check out React. I remember back when I was starting, it seems like so... It seems like it wasn't that long ago, but I learned React on my own. I think there was one class in web development, but it was not aimed at computer science majors necessarily. It was like a 100 level class aimed at people who wanted to learn specifically web development like web design, but it really just went over like basics of HTML, CSS. As you know, you can't really learn that stuff in like a three-month semester that deeply. You just kind of learn the basics. Interestingly, in my boot camp, one of the members of my cohort had just graduated with a CS degree, 
And he, I guess, felt the need or the the lack of front end education or really just JavaScript. <laughs> so he decided to do the boot camp. We all thought that was a little strange, but he got a lot out of it. So I often think that they're two very different things, front end development and computer science. <laughs> Yeah, we also have a lot of CS grads in the program I went to and worked at as well. So I'm curious what everybody's thoughts are about the prevalent requirement on front-end roles for CS degrees. I'll go first. So my last position was working with a UI for data center technology, which meant that a lot of the other engineers on the team were very low-level developers like kernel developers, driver developers. So of all the jobs I will probably ever have as a front-end developer, that was maybe the the job that computer science would have benefited me the most. And to be honest, I found that the things that I needed to learn in that realm were pretty accessible, okay, with one major exception, and that would be bit masking in JavaScript, which there are just not a lot of resources (laughs) on that, but uh, (laughs) I eventually figured it out. Honestly, it took about a year, but I got there. So I would say that even in a space where it is pretty computer science heavy, I still feel like the skill sets necessary to be a successful front-end developer don't really hinge on that knowledge. Yeah, I think with a lot of things, like a lot of industries, right, we still use degrees and certifications as shorthand for knowledge where it's a way of kind of like understanding like, oh, well, this person has this knowledge. And I think the problem with the front end space is the stuff moves so fast that, yeah, you might learn like JavaScript or you might learn, like I did, the the underpinnings of JavaScript in like you'll learn networking and you'll, then you'll learn dynamic languages. And that is theoretically a shorthand for, well, you could pick up JavaScript quickly. But I think it's an imperfect shorthand for trying to figure out if someone has the requisite skills. But I think that's also why it's good that in general as an industry, we do things like skills tests so that we can maybe get someone that sometimes it's the, even that's imperfect, right? There's no perfect way to do it. For the listeners who can't see, I started swaying back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Alex? I've definitely run into some people with degrees who have been trying to do front end. and. Some of the basic stuff that I've had to teach them that they didn't know. And it's not something that they ever like would have run into before. So it's very interesting because it's the type of person who could implement a JavaScript interpreter, but can't write JavaScript is a very interesting type of person to interact with. But I've had coworkers like that where you're just like, you are so smart and sometimes you are too smart for what we're trying to do here. Yeah, it's also interesting how like people's preconceptions can also affect the expectations that they have. Like, for example, one thing I think I hear a lot from people with non-JavaScript development backgrounds is like const doesn't work intuitively. Like the way that it's immutable is not what I would expect it to be. And for me, I'm like, really, it feels very natural. Like it works exactly like how I expected it to work with regards to like, for example, objects, you can still mutate the properties in the object when it's a const. But yeah, I think when I think about CS degrees, and that being like the arbiter of 
somebody being good enough to apply for a job or not. One thing I think about a lot is like, who has access to a CS degree? What does it take to be able to get through the program without feeling pushed out? Like get through the job hiring process without being pushed out? Also, like, what is the content of a CS program? I don't think we really have any good alternatives anywhere with regards to like ethics or like the foundations of computer science and what kind of biases and things we take into account when we're propagating more tech based on old tech. But yeah, that's that's something I think about a lot. And then a point that occurred to me when Matt was describing his outlook is, I feel like there's also maybe a potential there to like, we've all seen those junior job listings that are clearly a job for like five staff level engineers. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes, yeah, a CS degree may be used as a proxy for that. Like we want to hire somebody at the lowest level, but we wanted them to be a little bit more productive. And we're going to disguise that by just slapping this degree requirement on there. Yeah, I think it's it's sort of the same problem we run into with other forms of these credentialing, right? Where if you look at other industries, I mean, Tessie, you've probably heard me talk about this. But, you know, you look at like civil engineers, right? And they have a very well laid out certification process. And in a lot of ways, that's bad because it artificially restricts who can access that, right? Because you have to be the kind of person who can... This is also why it's good that we have boot camps to sort of fill a very specific niche because it's there's really no computer science bachelor's degree that you can get while working full time without essentially giving up like four years of your life and potentially not making money, right? You know, a lot of these programs are very time consuming. And I think that the big problem is like with boot camps, you don't really know the quality of a CS degree if you didn't go there, right? Like we have accreditation, but like my program was accredited and it didn't go over, it didn't explicitly require that I learn JavaScript, HTML, all that stuff. I learned it just in the process of doing some of my classes, but it wasn't an up-to-date credentialing process in that this program wasn't required to teach skills that would be necessary to get a job. And there's been other programs where I've talked to people and they were at non-accredited programs and they were like in their second year and they were just getting to actually learning programming. It was uh, <laughs> interesting. I mean, I think one thing I'm grateful for in the tech industry is that by and large, obviously this is not a universal truth, but by and large, most companies that you would want to work for understand that the main skill that you need as a developer is the ability to learn. Because every job is going to have a slightly different set of requirements for the skills you use. Like, this is my first job where I need to know anything about cloud infrastructure. <laughs> Not that I am succeeding really in that area, but I'm trying. But it's really hard to <laughs> to easily demonstrate that ability in the interview process, which is, I think, why we all still battle over tech interviews. But I guess so it really comes down to finding the resources to learn as you go. And when you do need to pick up CS stuff, it's very much geared towards formal education, most of the materials that I find. And I'm just like, no, I need quick, not, <laughs> not deep. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, this is why I find stuff like the Udacity nanodegree stuff interesting because it there's not a lot to fill that niche, right? They're really 
it's like with cloud stuff, right? If you need to learn a cloud technology, like, okay, you go to AWS and they have like their sponsored course, but that doesn't teach you necessarily the fundamentals. Yeah. Speaking of continuing education, I saw that apparently Google has their own kind of certification programs now and that they're going to be considering this equivalent to degrees. So I'm curious to hear everybody's thoughts around that, if they have any or like similar programs like the Udacity one that Matt brought up. I feel like programs like that, I mean, for Google, they're a large enough company that, I mean, it makes sense for them in that they don't really have to conform to anybody else's standards. They, they'll they still have a large pool of candidates and a lot of employees. But across the industry, my concern would be people accepting those as credentials. Sort of like CS degrees have been around, you know, since the dawn of tech time. A lot of people have accepted those as the, the currency for knowledge. But I feel like if there's a bunch of competing standards, I don't know how far that will ever get. Yeah, and philosophically, it's almost comparable to we ran into issues because NPM was a language commons for JavaScript, but it was owned by a private company without having an independent accreditation board or some independent way of verifying that these programs are doing the right thing in terms of what they're teaching. Uh, like we were talking about earlier, where sometimes people come out of programs not knowing what they need to know. I think that could be damaging. I don't think these are going to become really, I sort of see them as another way to get your foot in the door, like a less intense boot camp in a lot of ways. You know, I guess we'll see how, how valuable it ends up being as a credential. Yeah. I think also one question that that raises for me is why not just hire entry-level people and then train them on the job? Because it seems like the whole impetus for this program is to create more Googlers, right? And then in general, I feel like the industry has maybe almost willingly devalued certificates if they once held any value, like for gamification purposes, or maybe not really thinking about it with any kind of intention. Like, I feel like I have a lot of Code Academy certificates. Like, I don't mm -hmm. remember if Code School has certificates, but they're gone now. I'm sure Pluralsight probably has certificates. Udemy classes have certificates. Like, who is checking these things? I know some people list them on their resume. I'm really curious if any of them have heard back from a recruiter or a hiring manager being like, you know, that certificate that got you this interview. That's what I think might be the impetus for this is there really isn't a standards body like ABET for these certificates. So their thought might be, well, we're just going to make our own that teaches what we think people need to know. Here's an idea. Major technologies should make their own proficiency exams. That will never work, but I still like the idea. <laughs> oh my God. I'm imagining taking a proficiency exam in view and being graded officially not proficient. Oh, whatever. <laughs> we both know that's not true. <laughs> I think some of it is that a lot of it is adoption of a standard throughout whatever thing you're doing, right? So if you're if you're doing computer security and there's a standard for this is what you should be learning and there's a certification for that and that you can prove that like yeah, people who have the certification are good, you know, having that standards body, then it's great. But like just making random certifications, there's nothing in there that will 
ensure the quality of it, I guess, is sort of the thing. So trying to force that onto like a standards body for open source projects, right? So being able to be like, oh, this is the view certification, like the official view certification. Well, now suddenly we have to have the view team suddenly has to have an entire team of people dedicated to making certifications and then keeping up with it and all of these things. So it's not necessarily... Who should that fall on to? And how do you organize that sort of a thing? Obviously, Ben Hong. <laughs> really? I mean, the problem has been solved, Alex. It's, it's an right. interesting problem, too, because I think the companies, this isn't so much of a worry, honestly. I think that the biggest danger, really, with not knowing what you're getting into is with the customers of these schools. Like I said earlier, there was someone I knew who went through a CS degree and really realized they weren't getting the job skills they needed when they were already halfway through it. And this is why you'll hear stories about that. But companies, this is kind of why they use algorithm tests, right? Because the thought is like, oh, well, if you know algorithms, then you can pick up any CS stuff and programming stuff you need to know. Whether or not that's correct, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) But that's what they've decided to do in lieu of pushing for more certifications on these programs. I think another interesting question this raises for me that I've been thinking about a lot in the fall, like, I don't know if you all have this experience, but I feel like so many places like the recruiters and the hiring managers are like when you're talking to potential coworkers, they talk about how they're working with some of the smartest and most talented people they know. And like, we only want to hire the smartest and the best people. And I don't know if I want to be the smartest and the best, but I just feel like aside from being unrealistic, it's like, do there are definitely some problems I'm sure that take more thinking and, and more work and are more complex. But at the same time, do we really need the quote unquote smartest and most talented and best developers to make like a dropdown modal? Or I'm curious about this emphasis on certification for like proving that we are some level of intelligent. And then on the other hand, things that there are actually legal requirements for, like accessibility, kind of just don't make an appearance in these lists of like top 10 things all developers must know. Tess, are you implying that most of what I do is just making a skin on a database? (laughs) But it's a good point, right? Because these certifications can become unnecessarily gatekeeping when really all, all you really care about is, do you know this stuff, right? I think, honestly, we're probably going to end up having to have some sort of accessibility certification soon because there was that case with Domino's where they were violating the ADA because someone said, hey, listen, I'm not able to use your website due to my disability. And they said, "Okay, tough. And then that got brought up and they reminded Domino's kindly that the ADA exists for a reason. (laughs) Well, and it was also specifically with that case, too. They did not do good at accessibility in the first place. And then when somebody complained, they specifically changed it to disable the ability to use it completely and said, call us. And so there's, okay, attempting to be accessible and then there's not. And I think you're right that having some standards in regards to that as far as like, hey, This is the sort of minimum that you need to at least be trying to do and like what is acceptable and what is completely unacceptable, right, would be extremely beneficial. I feel like even places where the company like accessibility is one of their core things that they're like, you have to check this box in order for this to be considered ready to push to production. It can still be such a challenge. Like yesterday, Mm -hmm. I was reading a discussion around 
accessible carousels and accessible modals and like how that's really hard. And like some might say that that begs the question, should we really have carousels and modals? I don't know who, but that is another concern is like a lot of the the features that are very common across front end apps are maybe not designed to be accessible. And is it a matter of just like, we need to train people more on accessibility or is it more like we need to rethink the way that we approach design and these components? And I don't really know the answer. And I think it would be tough to put all that in into a certification as well. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think companies are handling stuff like that in a similar way that they're, the big companies are handling it in a similar way that they're now handling the issue of how do you ensure someone actually has the knowledge they say they have in that, at least at Google, we have our own internal standard that it's built off of the WCAG, I forget what that stands for, that standard. Oh, sorry, it's built off the WAI standard, the Web Accessibility Institute, I think it's, they sort of had to write their own standard because there wasn't one that was publicly accessible, that was agreed upon by everyone necessarily. Yeah, I wish that, for example, all of these boot camp programs taught accessibility because I think there, so many people are graduating from there that they really have the potential to change the landscape of the, at least the SaaS industry. I really would like to see them take more proactive steps to like consciously shaping these kinds of changes and bringing these kinds of, making these ideas more prevalent in the workplace. But that brings me to my next question, which is, I'm curious, Matt, are there any classes that you took that you feel like you're like, oh, I think anybody could benefit from this. Like it would make them a stronger front-end developer, degree or no degree. It's just like, it was very helpful to me. There were, I mean, there were a bunch, honestly. I think that I kind of cringe when people say, well, I don't use algorithms and data structures and all that stuff at work. Because people do, they just like don't think about it explicitly like that, right? Like anytime you use a JavaScript object, you're using a hash map. You just don't think about it like that. And I think people sell themselves short. So I think that my algorithms and data structures class really was extremely helpful because that stuff is transferable. I use it, like I did a trailing pointers problem the other day in, in something I was writing, right? Like it's it's stuff that's all around you. You just, once you reach a certain, as you program more, you kind of just don't realize that you're using all this stuff. The other one I thought was extremely useful was my programming languages class because being able to actually pick apart your tools and understand like, okay, well, JavaScript the reason why const works that way is it does, you know, pass by name for some of its references. So that's why you can edit the underlying reference because it all points to the same spot in the heap or in the stack, depending on what scope you're in. Stuff like that, I think, was very useful. I think it's a lot of stuff that people just pick up anyway, right? Like we as front-end developers intuitively know like, okay, well, this is lexical scope in JavaScript and stuff like that. We just don't maybe internalize it all the time internalize it in terms of we don't explicitly think like, okay, well, now I'm doing a theoretical computer science, right? So I think that really programming language theory class and an algorithms class is immensely useful to any programmer. Interesting. Yeah, I feel like a, the first couple of tickets that I had on the job were pretty algorithm and actually pretty close to the kind of problems that I was asked during the interview process. Yeah, I wonder if a lot of the complaints are more about like the divorce between the context and the problem itself. Because I feel like if you were like, hey, I need this UI thing and it needs to do X, Y, Z, then a lot of developers would probably be able to come up with it. But once you're in the context of it's an interview and also you don't know what the UI component is, it's just an arbitrary problem in a vacuum. Yeah. 
One more class I think also would be very useful. So I ended up taking two different ethics classes. I took a computer science department ethics class as well as a an electrical engineering ethics class because I did a minor in engineering entrepreneurship. And I think that every person who is working on computers should take some sort of ethics class or just be introduced to stuff like that. Those classes also taught me a little bit about IP law, which I think is important to know. Because as working programmers, sometimes companies will sneak stuff in there where they'll say, well, you're doing work for hire for us, but also we own the stuff you do outside. And you got to know to say, no, 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 that you don't do that. So I think that learning ethics and also learning a little bit of IP law is very useful. Nice. Yeah, I just don't do work outside of work and it solves that problem. (laughs) (laughs) From time to time, I feel like, wow, everybody should have to take a studio art class because there are so many times where you have to tear apart everything that you just finished and start over from scratch. And like people are critiquing your work uh, very closely. And I feel like it's it can be helpful to have gone through that experience. I'm ambivalent on it. Like maybe there's ways to like build up the skills gained from that without going through that. But similarly, I'm curious, Ari and Alex, if there are classes that you took that you think could be helpful to people working as web developers. No, but I think everyone should work retail at some point in their life, just saying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how you learn empathy. <laughs> I was going to say, or work a retail stock room during the holidays. Oof. Oh yeah, this is my first time not working in the holidays. It feels very weird. I think something that everybody should do to help their programming, and this is from my personal backgrounds, so this is my personal opinion, is they should learn to troubleshoot cabling for an audio system oh yes you're talking into what you're talking into an input and you're expecting output over there and there are like 12 machines between you and it and being able to figure out where the problem is helps you immensely when you are debugging programming because it's the exact same skill set i mean alex the world is barely on can you see my screen now no okay how about now you're on mute like i don't think this is realistic yeah this is true this is true that is a very good point though because i used to yeah i used to do audio tech work in college and it was such a similar process but the irony here is that just before the show we were trying to troubleshoot (laughs) i'm so upset it was working perfectly right up until the recording Yeah, it's definitely a skill that translates into a lot of other things. Matt, if people want to talk to you more, where can they find you on the internet? So my Twitter is private, just in case I accidentally post spicy memes. But if it's personal opinions. Yeah, or personal opinions. I mean, I just figure I don't need, there's nothing I need to say to the world other than what's in my blog. So if you go to mattdelsig.me, that'll have my contact info. It was like a 10-year-old photo of me that was taken on a very grainy digital camera. I thought you were going to say on a very grainy day for some reason. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) It was very dark out, so the ISO was pumped up. Nice. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. And with that, it's time for us to move on to this week's picks. Alex, would you like to go first? Thanks, Tessa. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) I have two picks this week. One comes, uh, I thought of in the middle of this, it is a great resource for you to give any employer who or designer or whoever who wants to implement a carousel 
on your website. The website is called shouldiuseacarousel.com. Oh, so good. And it is a fantastic resource on carousels and whether or not you should use them. The other pick of mine is is a better pick. This year, we sort of do a yearly refresh of our spices every year. And there's one company that we love that makes salt mixes. And they're a local Atlanta-based company. And so my pick is Beautiful Briny Sea. We really love their unicorn salt. It goes with everything. So I highly recommend at least looking them up, maybe getting a sampler pack because it is fantastic. They also make really great gifts for people that you can't figure out what it is that they want as a Christmas gift. Just be like, salt mix, you cook, right? Yeah, great. Here you go. Brilliant gift idea. There you go. I think also having the name unicorn in it will probably appeal to a lot of people who work in tech. Could be wrong, but... Well, and they also have sugar blends. Ooh. Mr. Giggle Pants is a fantastic <laughs> sugar blend. <laughs> it has uh, hibiscus, lavender, and sugar in it. It's it's quite tasty. Whoa. So yeah, I highly recommend looking up Beautiful Briny Sea. Nice. Oh, this is reminding me of the lavender honey I left at the Atlanta airport. R.I.P. That sounds amazing. How about you, Ari? What are your picks for this week? Yeah, so I will do the obligatory Hades pick now that I have played it. But since we picked that for like, I don't know, the last five weeks running, I'm not going to go into that. You already know. Just throwing in my support. And my next pick is The Morning Show, which you can watch on Apple TV+. Plus. It has Reese Witherspoon, Steve Carell, and Jennifer Aniston as the stars. Now, if there are any Friends fans out there, I'm sorry, I'm about to offend you. I never really understood (laughs) the Jennifer Aniston appeal (laughs) until I watched this show. It was the first time where I felt like she played a character with actual depth. Sorry, Rachel was not deep. Uh, (laughs) But really good, just well done drama. So I highly recommend that. And those are my two picks. Nice. I guess I'm going to be last to board the Hades train. Matt, what are your picks for the week? So my first pick is Persona 5 Royale, which is the updated version of Persona 5 which I really wanted a game that was super long, very strange, and also kind of mundane. And that was why I wanted to start playing Persona again, because I figured it would sort of help distract me this winter. It's a good thing your Twitter's on private after that. I'm not kidding. (laughs) So... A South Down Coffee Espresso Blend. So this is a coffee roaster near my house. My girlfriend went there and got, she got coffee for my birthday, but she asked them to just give her like a grab bag, but they ended up giving her three unmarked bags of what I'm pretty sure is their espresso blend, which I go through about two pounds of coffee every two weeks. So this isn't actually that much coffee for me, but it's very good. And it's a nice local New York brand. And then my last pick is computer-related, which is Operating Systems, Three Easy Pieces. There's a free version online, but there's also, you can buy the PDF for like 10 bucks. It is an operating systems book. Part of why I've been thinking about all this CS education stuff is I've been trying to improve some gaps in my knowledge recently. So it's just so that I can be a little better at certain parts of my work. And this book has been awesome for learning about operating systems, which I didn't really learn about the first time around. Nice. All right. Well, I guess it's time for my pick. 
I hadn't taken it out until this podcast episode. And now I'm like debating if I should pick it or not. But I went on Etsy and I got some things to like customize my switch. So I got like a little slip cover and like these little jelly things that go on the joysticks because I was moving things around the other day and I had a close call with my switch. So I was like, oh, maybe I should put something on it. So I put it on while we were setting up for the recording and it doesn't feel all that great. So we'll see if I stick with it. But I think the idea of customizing your stuff is still fun and cute. And also you're supporting small businesses on Etsy. So yeah, novelty all around. (laughs) And that's all for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, enjoy the view. Bye.